Whiskey Weeks is finally here. That's right. Five straight weeks of just talking about whiskeys and bourbons on the Hops and Spirits Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Green. We got five straight weeks of whiskeys from the Midwest, representing Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, and Tennessee. It's going to be a lot of fun. We kick it all off this week with George Dickles, Nicole Austin. We'll also be talking to Tim Nettle about the bourbon industry and tastings. Uh, that'll be coming up here shortly. And remember, we've got a great giveaway as part of Whiskey Weeks. We'll be talking about that more next week. Uh, but remember, Whiskey Weeks is presented by Obergatlinburg. Come discover all the wonderful things that Obergatlinburg Ski Area and Amusement Park has to offer. Experience breathtaking views as you ride the aerial tramway from downtown Gatlinburg to the mountaintop to play, shop, and dine. Summer tubing, wildlife encounter, coaster, ice bumper cars, alpine slide, chairlift, year-round ice skating, and much more equals fun for everyone. During the winter months, enjoy the snow tubing, skiing, or snowboarding, or play in the Cubby's Snow Zone with your little one. Fun festivals round out the calendar with Mayfest in the spring and Oktoberfest each fall. A mountaintop of fun and excitement high above Gatlinburg is waiting for you. That's Ober Gatlinburg, who's our presenting sponsor of Whiskey Weeks. And now let's not waste any more time and let's get into Whiskey Weeks. And our first guest is Tim Nettle, founder of Distilled Living, the official bourbon steward of Churchill Downs, the executive bourbon steward in residence at the Kentucky Castle. And for good measure, why not? The adjunct professor of bourbon studies at Midway University in Kentucky. Tim, thanks for talking or taking some time to talk bourbons, whiskeys, and a whole lot of other goodies with us. No, thanks for inviting me onto the show. I'm really excited to be here. Now, how do you find time to do all of that? Because that seems like a long list of things that you've got going on in your life. <laughs> uh, that is a great question. Yeah, it's a lot of pieces. Um, the Well, starting at the, the bottom of the list, the professorship at Midway. Um, that is online classes through the bourbon studies program. Um, so, so it's a lot of work to build the syllabus and to create each new class. Uh, but then engaging with the students, um, it's, it's a pretty quick, you know, half hour, hour a day, um, and maintaining the discussions and, and, and grading and doing those kinds of pieces. Uh, it's not a full-time, um, you know, uh, faculty position there, which is good because I wouldn't have time for anything else. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the other positions, so where the consulting work and the appearance work that I do uh, at the Kentucky Castle and at Churchill Downs, you know, that's kind of a, an as-we-go-along basis. So when people request especially bourbon tasting or when we're, we're in, like we're in release season right now, so looking at making sure we get uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the limited edition expressions that are coming out and updating the inventories and, and staff training and those pieces, you know, those kind of fit into the schedule as needed. Um, and then with my company, you know, we've got, we've got people that help, <laughs> you know, I've got a whole stable of executive bourbon stewards that, that help, uh, and production teams. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's not a one person operation gotcha. uh, being in the world of bourbon. The world of bourbon is so big and so hot right now. Um, there's a lot of people that I'm, I'm grateful to have involved in what I do. And then, uh, have, have you always been a big bourbon fan? I mean, did, did you just fall in love with it right from a young age, so to speak, <laughs> legal age, of course, um, or, or was it something that you just grew to love? How, how did you get into the bourbon world? Oh, that's such a great question. And everybody has a different kind of entry or origin story into the world of bourbon or, or whatever their profession is. Um, actually, no. So, uh, I was not a big drinker, uh, in, in, even in, you know, the college years and when you'd expect it to be, I was, I was not a big fan of bourbon. Um, I had some friends who, who poured me 
uh, some Woodford at one point uh, at a dinner party and we're like, this is the best stuff. And I, I tried to treat it like wine because I was running a wine bar and I took a big swig of it and I was like, <laughs> oh, that, that, that's got a little heat on it. And, and I just thought it was flavorless. Um, flash forward a few years and I was very fortunate to be working for one of our local celebrity chefs here in the bluegrass region in Kentucky, Weta Michael. I was working at her flagship restaurant, Holly Hill Inn, when she became the chef in residence at Woodford Reserve. So I got transferred over and I was running the, the service side of the operation at Woodford Reserve uh, for, for the culinary program. And so my job was to do the event execution for the master distiller, Chris Morris. And, and to be perfectly honest, at the beginning, I was a disaster. That's my first time <laughs> in a distillery. I'm not a bourbon drinker. I don't know what I'm doing. I got an events background. I got a wine background. I don't have a bourbon background. And two weeks into this, one, one day, we, it, I have a particularly not good day. And Chris Morris looks at me and he says, Tim, do you drink bourbon? And I just didn't say anything because what do you say to that? Yeah. He yeah. looks at me. He's like, all right. All right, all right. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to teach you how to drink bourbon. So my entire bourbon experience has been inside the industry. And I spent four years working for a James Beard nominated chef, but doing all the events for a bourbon master distiller. So, so my entire philosophy and understanding and experience with bourbon has been on the flavor side, has been food pairings, has been sensory training. Um, I, I understand production because I was the distillery. I did, did some cursory production training. Um, but really, it's for me, it's all about how to have a good palate and culinary experience with bourbon. And then, you know, just being there for ultimately for seven years at the distillery, that's how I fell in love with it was, was having this experience. And that's what I try to do now with my business is a lot of people experience bourbon the same way I did at the beginning. Somebody hands them a glass, they take a big sip of it. And they're like, whoop, that's not for me. So I yep. train people <laughs> in the techniques that I learned uh, under the guidance of the master distiller and the James Beard nominated chef. That, that's amazing. Cause I, I'm the same way I've, I've you know, learned, uh, you know, I might need to mix a few, few things first before I just dive right into, to a bourbon. Um, you know, the palate's growing, but uh, it's still, still a young palate on the bourbon side for me. Um, you, you, you're a bourbon steward. And for those that don't know what that is, what is it and how did you become one? Sure. That's a great question. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story about how this came to be. Um, like most bourbon stories, it's not true. Um, but it's like a fishing tale, right? <laughs> exactly. It's a fishing tale for, for a bourbon story. Um, but it's a great story. So the story goes that, um, years ago, this would have been, I guess, five years ago, six years ago. Now, one of our Kentucky bourbon master distillers went into a bar, hotel bar in Louisville, sat down, orders a bourbon and the bartender serves him a Jack Daniels. And he says, Oh no, we got to do something about this. But whether or not that's the real origin story, the Kentucky Distillers Association, which manages the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, does a lot of lobbying efforts, been really the, the proponent of Kentucky bourbon since the 1800s. They organized all the master distillers and other significant luminaries in the bourbon industry. Um, and through the Moonshine University uh, up in Louisville, created the Stave and Thief Society. So this was spawned by the bourbon industry itself in order to solve the problem of what we call the frontline uh, workers. So your, your, your 
hotel concierge, your bartenders, your restaurant servers, your liquor store employees, anyone related to beverage alcohol in Kentucky who, who ultimately talks to a customer, they wanted them to all have a foundation in bourbon. So they were looking at the wine world in the sommelier program and they said, okay, we need the same thing. We need an organization and a certification that manages bourbon education and bourbon training. So they created the Stave and Thief Society. So Stave references the 33 staves of a barrel because uh, bourbon is very much a barrel driven, barrel forward spirit. Um, so Stave and Thief and the thief refers to a whiskey thief. So that's how you would sample uh, bourbon out of the, or any form of whiskey out of a barrel. So you, you pop the bung out, drop in this, big long copper straw looking thing pull out a sample and then you can do your analysis of it so it's about what makes the barrel or what makes the bourbon from the barrel and then uh, how we evaluate the bourbon so the stave and thief society then manages the bourbon steward program there's two levels certified bourbon steward which is kind of the entry level we really want everyone who works in bourbon to have at least that and then the executive bourbon which is the step up both of them do require passing a test. So people are like, oh, is there a test to get the certification? <laughs> yes, absolutely there is. Uh, you got to do a little work. It's not just all fun, right? <laughs> uh, we want people to uh, to be accurate uh, and correct in their uh, bourbon uh, education and, and relationships with the customer. So I have the, the higher level, the executive bourbon steward. And there are a lot of people that do as well. Uh, it's becoming very common now, which is great for our industry. And then obviously, you know, the, the bourbon industry itself has changed dramatically. You know, I've, I've talked to Chris Morris. I've talked to a lot of them, especially some of the ones that have been in the game, you know, for multiple decades. And, you know, in the 90s, 80s, you know, it's not what it is today. And even in the early 2000s, it's not what it is today. How has it changed over the years? And what do you attribute to that? Because now it's, it's, it's a big deal. Like, I mean, you do, you do a lot of events. You do bourbon tastings, food and you know, food and bourbon, you know, events, things like that. I mean, those are normal now where they might not have been 15 years ago. Yeah, it's a great question as well. Um, I've been fortunate to have been in the industry now for about 12 years. Um, so I've seen, I got in right when the tide was starting to turn. Um, and this is one of the things that I actually ask my students to do in one of my courses is to, to analyze um, historic trends in Kentucky bourbon industry to, to see where those changes have occurred. And generally... Um, we look at the downturn across the 60s, 70s, 80s, and into the 90s when when just the general population was turning against brown spirits and to clear spirits and wine spritzers and various uh, light beers and various things. Um, getting, getting Kentucky bourbon back to its perception as a, as a premium offering and then having really, you know, really special super premium, ultra premium expressions within the industry a lot of that has to do with just really intelligent decisions um, on the part of a lot of people in the industry. Uh, we, and I'm not a bourbon historian, so I really defer a lot of these pieces to other folks in the industry who have done more research than I have. But, I, but the general consensus is that things started to get their initial turnaround in the 1980s with the release of Blanton's and Booker's. Um, which were positioned as, you know, small batch, single barrel, very premium versions of bourbon. When bourbon was, was falling lower and lower on the shelf in the liquor store. These said, oh, no, no, we need to go back up to a higher level on the shelf. Um, and then um, more distilleries started offering more premium, specialty bottlings, nicer glasses, uh, glass bottles, uh, nicer labels. And um, 
then the introduction of the Kentucky Bourbon Trail as a destination helped the industry see itself in its relationship to the U.S. and the consumer globally even. So it was this idea that, oh, you know, we're looking over at Napa and Sonoma and what they're doing in relationship to their localized identity, but how it relates to a global consumer say, you know what, Kentucky bourbon has a history, it has a heritage, it has unique production. Um, there's a reason Kentucky makes 95% of the world's bourbon. Um, we're looking at how just really cool that is. And, and bourbon has a really complex, beautiful flavor profile. Um, and, and the chefs, when, when the chef culture picked up, you know, Food Network really helped pioneer that. A lot of the chefs really turned to bourbon, um, especially the U.S.-based chefs, as an American spirit. And they're like, I want this in my food. It started showing up on TV shows. Um, we started seeing, you know, Justified has so much bourbon in it. <laughs> um, and Deadwood. And, yeah, right? You've seen those shows and you're like, oh, I recognize that bottle. There's a bottle of Blanton sitting on that person's desk. Um, so we started to see it, it, it weaving its way back into culture that way. And the distilleries responded very positively, investing in both the super premium and ultra premium and limited edition expressions um, that really drive a lot of the, the consumer desire to collect, but then also building these beautiful visitor centers and actually putting a lot into their hospitality programs and saying, okay, I want you to come in. I want you to see how we make this. There's a lot of pride in what we do. Um, and we want you to experience it. We want you to experience it. Well, remember bourbon can't have any additives for color or flavor. Mm -hmm. we, don't, we can't cheat it. We can't darken it and make it look older. We can't, Oh, we script fermentation. We don't get the right notes out of it. We can't correct that with with some sort of you know fake flavors or something. So, so when you're trying to craft a bourbon flavor profile, you got to do it right from the beginning, and that takes a lot of technical expertise. Um, and when you have that level of expertise, then you have a lot of pride that goes along with it. So being able to to open the doors to the distillery and show people that pride and show people that process, and then give them a good tasting experience at the end of it, um, it's it's all those pieces together. Um, and then the cocktail culture, you know, you start out, you're talking about cocktails. I love cocktails, I'm a huge, huge cocktail fan. You know, the, the bartenders in New York and Chicago and Atlanta uh, and Houston, Austin, um, San Francisco that brought back the craft cocktail and the craft cocktail culture, they very much are embracing bourbon and have been for a while. And it's companion spirit, American rye, because those were some of the foundational spirits of cocktails back in the 1800s. So we're, we're seeing it across every spectrum of consumption from going to a liquor store, buying a bottle and, and enjoying it neater on the rocks at home to going out, having a cocktail with it. And then for traveling. And then when, once we get back to, to full travel again, getting our million visits a year to Kentucky distilleries, it's, it's every part of the experience and the identity of bourbon together. I was going to say, it, it is amazing to see how, how the industry has grown and how they've really embraced uh, kind of the the like you said the visitor experience you know because that makes a big difference when you can go see where it's made i mean i know sometimes you know the, the tours if you go to too many of them you might go okay I see, I've, I've got the process down but they're all starting to talk about their histories and they're they're doing a really good job of making this still a fun trip and a fun learning experience in the process oh. and then <laughs> yeah. And then, well, thank you and for then, mentioning that because um, that's one of the things that you don't get to see a lot of is how the industry has evolved, right? So we started out with 
with five distilleries that were open to the public and, and nobody really knowing what they're doing. And um, the Kentucky Distillers Association, which manages the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, like I mentioned, they they do surveys and they do analysis. And one of the things that started to grow in the industry was um, once people see production, they've seen production. Six horses of mm-hmm. got it. Um, we know about the grains and not 51% corn. And they were the ones who really helped the distilleries learn to differentiate themselves on the tours because that was the feedback that we were getting from folks like yourself who were coming in saying, oh, I've seen production, I've seen production. Um, and now the distilleries are really putting effort and intent into making each distillery experience different and unique. And, and it is amazing to see. And they're putting a lot of money into those facilities. And hopefully, you know, maybe in 2021, uh, things will get back to normal. Now, one thing that has changed and I don't know, maybe it's a good thing for the bourbon industry too, is, you know, obviously people can't go to a a place as easily, or you can't have as many people at tastings and so forth. So virtual tastings, those have kind of taken off. And when I was talking to uh, Shane Baker from Wilderness Trail, he said, you know what, it's really kind of what the internet's supposed to do, you know, tear down the walls of of being just in a silo. He's like, we don't have to go to bourbon to, or to, to bourbon to Britain to talk to the, a, a society over a bourbon society over there. We can all do it virtually. And you know, how, how has virtual tastings worked for it? Cause to me, I think it's a somewhat of a good thing uh, that, you know, now almost anywhere you are, you can talk to, to the distillers and people in the industry. Uh, virtual bourbon tastings have been, um, really a smash hit. Uh, obviously every type of virtual bourbon tasting solves the problem of getting to the, the bourbon to the tasters differently. Uh, a lot of the bourbon clubs, you know, kind of distribute internally, uh, which is super helpful um, for corporate clients uh, that, that are hosting uh, folks uh, for a virtual bourbon tasting. They, they have different mechanisms for, for getting bourbon to everybody. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I wasn't Shane, but I was talking to another uh, representative of a distillery and they were like, yeah, I've just, in the last week I've done Australia, I've done South Asia, I've done Europe. Uh, and before they would, that would have taken weeks of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for my company, we do a lot of virtual bourbon tastings. Um, we found out a sweet spot with, with private parties, um, a lot of backyard socially distanced parties. Um, and uh, a lot of the corporate events as well. And it's, we're, we're all kind of feeling Zoom fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. And so there, and you know, there needs to be a reason to get together. Um, and it, and it needs to be more than, oh, let's just try to stare at each other. Um, so bourbon, because of its growing popularity, but because so many people are novices into it, um, it's, it's got a really wide appeal right now. So bringing in an expert that's like, okay, either, either, you know, production person like Shane or uh, a palate training person like myself and saying, we're going to get you a couple samples or you're going to, you know, go to your liquor store and we're going to give you a list of what to buy. Uh, and we're going to walk through it together and you're going to, you're going to walk away, you know, having a better appreciation of what it is and how to enjoy it. Uh, that's really appealing to people right now. Um, and, you know, you get, two or three bourbons into somebody in an hour and then it gets a little bit easier to talk on zoom. <laughs> Absolutely. End up having a, a good time and, and then you, you stop and you're responsible. <laughs> um, 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 Tim, uh, for, for those that want to maybe set up a virtual tasting or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, so best way to reach me is through our website, distilled living.com. 
or distilled living on all the social medias. Um, and we'd love to talk to you about virtual bourbon tastings. And um, when you kind of come back to Kentucky, when we're doing tourism again, about uh, the, that whole side of experiencing bourbon hospitality. Awesome, Tim. Thank you so much for this. And we will definitely have to do this again. And because and, there's so much more uh, that we can talk about. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you again to Tim Niddle of Distilled Living for talking virtual tastings, how the industry is adapting to this uh, crazy time and how the industry has evolved over the years and uh, what his position of a bourbon steward is because I never really knew that that existed until recently. And as we continue on with Whiskey Weeks, we now move to none other than Nicole Austin, General Manager and Distiller for Cascade Hollow Distilling in Tennessee. How do you know them? They're better known as the home of George Dickel Tennessee Whiskey. Nicole, thanks for taking some time to talk uh, spirits with us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Now, Nicole, I find this kind of interesting. How does a Syracuse, New York, born and raised girl end up in the distilling industry? Yeah, uh, good question. So (laughs) it... It was not on my mind uh, so much when I was living in Syracuse. Uh, when I was growing up, um, it it really honestly did not occur to me that this was a job that I could do. Um, you know, it's it's not included in your high school career fair, you know, to go off and like make whiskey. So it wasn't on my mind really until a lot later. Um, I started in the environmental engineering industry. So uh, that's kind of where I got, got my start. And Uh, It turns out in New York City, that is mainly a euphemism for wastewater treatment. Oh, exciting. Um, Very glamorous. (laughs) Very glamorous work. (laughs) And, uh, you know, obviously no shock, right? That wasn't exactly, um, you know, inspirational career. And so I was in Brooklyn when I kind of occurred to me that this was the path I would want to take. I was at a bourbon bar. And, you know, whiskey was being poured for me by a really knowledgeable and kind of enthusiastic bartender who totally changed my life when he commented how that particular whiskey was distilled. And it just occurred to me that, you know, distillation is literally what I learned in chemical engineering school. And I could possibly apply that knowledge to go off and make whiskey, which is this like incredible, you know, beautiful craft that's so culturally relevant and artistic and uh, it, it just totally changed my life when it occurred to me that that was the job that I could do. Uh, and have you ever reached back out to to that bartender? Oh yeah, we're still friends. For example, yeah, <laughs> yeah he knows. He 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 knows how much he changed my life. We're um we're still friends actually. And he um he later so when I got started, um he actually worked with me and we made um, a rye whiskey together, sort of as uh, just as a trial. Um, and that rye ended up going on to win double gold at San Francisco World Spirits Competition. So um, I, I'd say we've we've both helped each other out. Oh, that is that is an awesome story, and you just never know how how life will go and and where you know what road uh, you know will get you there. Um, you mentioned, you know, you had an engineering background. That's one thing I'm finding out a lot of master distillers nowadays, they seem to maybe come from that, that background was engineering something that you wanted to do growing up and, or, or was that something that, you know, once you kind of got to to college that you, you looked into? Um, what I wanted to do was, well, at least in high school, I wanted to be some kind of artist, but I just had absolutely no talent of any kind in really any capacity. <laughs> so, um, you know, what I was good at was chemistry and math. So, um, 
you know, engineering for me just felt like a really natural, um, a really natural path. And then, you know, obviously, um, you mentioned kind of that, that leap you took in, in 2010 to become a distiller or get into the distilling industry. What, what was it that was finally the last straw? I mean, was it just that conversation or was it because of kind of that unglamorous life of, of the engineering world and, and wastewater in the, in New York? What, what was the, what, what did push you over and make that leap? So um, I actually didn't quit my, I I joined Kings County in 2010. um, And that was after I had spent about two years at that point trying to get into the industry. Um, I know it feels to me like yesterday, but it was actually quite a long time ago. um, And maybe worth reminding folks that like craft spirits was not really an established industry, you know, back in 2008. Um, So I, I was, I knew it's what I wanted to do, but you know, I didn't really have the right last name to work in Kentucky. And there really weren't a lot of other folks in the game at that time. So uh, it was Kings County got their license in April of 2010. I came knocking on their door about two months later, um, the first day that they actually had some spirits to sell, you know, wanting to wanting to join them. And, you know, essentially, they were like, well, we don't have any money and we can't pay you. And I said, that's fine. Make me a partner. Um, and that's how I got in, but it probably will shock exactly no one to learn that, uh, you know, that tiny little artisanal distillery was not going to pay any of our Brooklyn rent. So, uh, all of us kept our day jobs actually for the first few years. Um, so it wasn't until years later, um, that I was actually able to quit my engineering job and be a distiller full time. And that was largely thanks to Dave Pickerel, who hired me for his consulting company and, the kind of combination of Kings County and consulting with him is what allowed me to, to finally, you know, quit my job and, and be in this industry full time. And then you, you said you, you weren't a great artist growing up, but I have to think that, you know, depending on what you look as art, you, you're an artist now and you, you've had some pretty big honors there, you know, a couple years into the kind of the game, so to speak, you know, New York times dubbed you bourbon's master of craft in 14. Then you mentioned the, uh, double gold at the 2015 San Francisco spirits competition. Um, what was, what were those moments like when you knew that, um, was that kind of when you knew you made the right career move? (laughs) Um, I definitely, I agree with you. I do feel like a a bit of an artist now, and that's part of what interested me, you know, in whiskey making, you know, if, if all you can do is math, this is about as close as you can come to making art, you know, with that Mm -hmm. skill. And so I do feel that way now. And it's part of where my passion, I think, comes from for this. Um, you asked also, you know, kind of did, did the awards make me feel like I had, uh, you know, made it a little bit. Um, but honestly, this industry is so full of greats. And there's so many people that have accomplished so much. Um, and, you know, there's no, uh, you know, you don't get like a fat check when you win that double gold. It's not... <laughs> you know, it's not quite that linear. Um, it feels like a process, you know, I, I guess the awards are really nice and they, they mean a lot. And the, the awards that I think mean the most to me, um, would be that the whiskey of the, of the year from whiskey advocate for, for this year's for, um, the 2019 bottle and bond that was hugely meaningful. And also the awards that came from the American craft spirits association, because, 
you know, recognition from your peers is is really deeply meaningful, I think, because those are the folks who, you know, I always feel like really know. Um, and those, they mean a lot, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel done. You know, I think this is a lifetime pursuit. I was gonna say, and it's a it's a lifetime of learning too from from everything so I, I've I've heard from others. So much, yeah. I mean, there's just so much. There's so much about whiskey that's not understood, and part that's part of what makes it so beautiful and artful. You know, the fact that it can't be, you know, fully broken down into some output of a you know a lab analytics, but it also means that there's like always more to do, always more to seek out, always more to try and understand, always more to try and accomplish. And then obviously now you're with, with George Dickel. You made uh, the move from, you know, from starting out in New York. Now you're down in Tennessee and you're taking over a centuries old brand in George Dickel and working at Cascade Hollow. Uh, what, what's that like? What's, I mean, that had to be a, a pretty big thing too. It is. It's a big shift, um, you know, to think about looking after the heritage of a brand. And when I was at Kings County, I always said that there was a great freedom in you know, not having to worry that if you do something, if you take a risk and fail, that you're somehow like letting down six generations of your family. Um, you know, there was a great freedom in that. And I'm definitely conscious. I'm glad that I have the experience that I have now, you know, to come into a brand like George Dickel to feel like I can, you know, respect its history and heritage and, and feel confident that the whiskeys that I put out will be in keeping with the kind of quality that that Dickle has become known for. So I'm glad that I've had that experience. And it's definitely, it's a responsibility, you know, not just to George Dickel, the brand, but the folks who work there and, you know, who've been making amazing whiskey there for years before I ever got there. Uh, you know, I think I, I'm very conscious that uh, I have a responsibility to all of them. I was going to say, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit there. But how do you balance the, that past and history of, of the Dickel name and brand, but also kind of push things? Because I know that's one of the reasons they they were really excited to bring you on board was your innovation. Uh, how do you, how do you kind of balance all of that and still um, do everything uh, right and proudly? Yeah, it, it's a good question, and it's something that um, I absolutely have you know thought a lot about. And I think the way that I think about it and consider it is that you know, the history of this brand has always been marked by a change. And I've never been of the mind that like, there's not one year that you can point to where everything was perfect. And therefore, we should just copy that particular year forever and ever and never change anything. Um, you know, progress is part of what the brand stands for, you know, and, and future thinking and that sort of relentless pursuit of quality. That's, that is the heritage of this brand, you know, that George went out of his way to try and seek quality whiskeys and chose to source them at Cascade Distillery and invest in that distillery. And, you know, it's always been moving forward. You know, this brand has moved forward and stayed alive through prohibition. You know, it survived when it wasn't being made in Tennessee. It survived the rebuilding of this distillery and coming back to Tennessee in the 1960s. And, you know, the evolution since then. So there's no, it's, it's never been constant, you know, it's never, um, been continuous. It's always strove to like move forward and, 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 you know, be the best that it can. So that's when I think of like, how do I respect the heritage? It's respecting that attitude and that desire. Um, 
you know, so it's a balance. I was going to say, and it's, it's, it's a balance that you guys have been doing very well for a very long time. Now I'm going to put you on the spot here, you know, cause I'm sure this is like, you know, picking your favorite kid or your favorite pet or anything like that. What's your, what's your favorite whiskey that you guys make at George Dickel? So two ways that I could think about answering that question. My current favorite is the latest release of bottled and bond. And I think, uh, you know, that's just the whiskey that I was so, um, you know, intimate with, and it's the most, it's the most present in my mind. And I, I'm really spent a lot of time, you know, crafting it. I've been talking a lot about it lately. So it's the one that just immediately comes to mind when I think about what's my favorite in the moment. I think it's just, I'm so pleased with how it came out. I think it's so balanced and so lovely, but the one, you know, what's the one that I reach for the most often is Dickel 12. Interesting. Interesting. I like that. Now, uh, most people that, that know the George Dickel name uh, probably go toward that black label, the number eight recipe, but obviously you make the bottom bond, the number 12, number one there, there's, and you even have one uh, with um, the Tabasco. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So you guys make a bunch of whiskeys. What's the biggest difference in them or how can you, for those that may not understand, how are they s- so different but so similar in in a sense sure it's a it's a thoughtful question and it is a little bit complicated because so often um you know the different brands might have something to point to like say a different mash bill or um you know a yeast strain or, or something really kind of concrete about that happens in the distillery but dickel uh, all of our tennessee whiskeys are actually produced uh, in the exact same way. So the mash bill, the way they're fermented, the distillation, the charcoal mellowing, when they go into the cask, they go in exactly the same. And the portfolio actually is a lot more like um, like a single malt kind of portfolio where you could envision, you know, the difference between like the 12-year-old and the 18-year-old, you know, out of one distillery. It's, the, it's how the whiskey is aged and how it is blended that creates our different expressions. So Dickel 8, common misconception, those are, they're not age statements, right? They're recipe numbers. Um, so Dickel 8 is a little bit younger on average, so kind of six to eight years old typically. And it's selected to express a lot of those classic bourbon characters, you know, vanilla, um, some like baking spice. So really meant to be like a really versatile and approachable whiskey. And then Dickel 12 um, is a little bit older. It's a lot more complex blend. So the youngest whiskey is in that about six years old. The oldest whiskeys are pushing, you know, 14 years. So a wide range, um, a lot of different marks in that. And it really does, it leans a lot heavier, not only into the wood character, but into expressing some of that, what I think of as the Dickel House style, this like waxy fruit character. So it's a pretty big, bold whiskey. And I... I typically drink highballs at home, you know, whiskey with club soda. And so it's, it's really, it's complexity lends it really well to that kind of like high dilution um, drink. And then the bottled and bond, you know, there's all those rules for bottled and bond, but this ours in particular, um, of course it has to all be from one distilling season because that's part of the rules for bottled and bond. So you can't blend across many, many years the way we do for the 8 and the 12. You have only one six-month period that you can use at a time. So that one is a lot more narrow of a selection and a lot more um, kind of consciously created, I might say. And in that, 
the individual lots of whiskey, you know, I selected and blended um, to express this kind of particular character. So it it's just a smaller scale, you know, right? It's a, it's a smaller production, so it enables me to kind of touch every part of it a little bit more. And then, uh, you know, I was able to, to try the Superior Number 12, um, and, and I must say it, it definitely has some interesting flavors, and if I'm not mistaken, I read that you said this one comes with a little personality, personality and I love that description <laughs> of it because, um, I mean, it really, it really does, and it's a very unique uh grouping of flavors in my mind. It, it is. It really stands out. Um, and like, I can always taste it in a lineup, you know, I have like a blind lineup. It's like, you can pick it out, you know, like that's Stickle 12. And it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah. It really stands out. It's like one of those whiskeys that I think it's so unexpected, right? Cause folks so often I think have an expectation for Tennessee whiskey, you know, because all they tend to know about it and, and, and rightly so, cause you know, that's what's, what's there in the rules is that it's bourbon that's been charcoal mellowed. And so they have, I think, an expectation that it's going to be really, really mellow or maybe even bland. And then you, you know, you take one taste of Dickel 12 and it just defies those notions completely. So, um, it is quite a curious whiskey. And then obviously your newest limited release is uh, or kind of releases the bottled and bond, which mm-hmm. I, I thought was absolutely enjoyable. Thank um, you. it was, it, it was great. And that's one that you actually had more of a hand in. What, what was that like for you? Cause I'm guessing, is that kind of like the first one you've really been able to do it at Dickel is kind of get your hands on is that bottled and bond? Yeah. So I, you know, I've gotten, I'm involved, um, with the production of the eight and the 12, but you know, there's already very much a process in place, you know, to make those, um, that preceded me and, and would con- continue after me. I'm quite certain. Um, so, you know, my role there I see as more of like a, a steward, you know, um, kind of making sure and, and seeing, you know, what, what minor tweaks can I make to continue to improve the quality and delivery on those. But the bottled and bond, um, you're exactly right, is the first one that I kind of conceptualized myself um, to release. So the first one, um, the approach for the the 2019 release, which was the fall 2005 distilling season, um, I had just a number of maturing whiskey samples um, from the library that had been collected that year. So, you know, just a whole whole bunch of samples from a whole bunch of barrels um, that we had maturing. And I was specifically setting out, I knew I wanted to make a bottled and bond, and I was really setting out to try and pick whiskeys that I thought would showcase that Tennessee whiskey and George Dickel in particular um, should absolutely be considered kind of among the great bourbon whiskey producers. And so I was selecting whiskeys that I thought would show that off. And that's how I made that first blend for the 05. So um, kind of nosing and tasting it against some of the other really well-regarded bourbons and, and other American whiskeys. So that was the that's was kind of the approach for the first one. And then the second one, you know, that, that first whiskey went off and won whiskey of the year, which was amazing and absolutely I, I was gonna say, is it is it hard to kind of top that when you, you win so whiskey hard. advocates whiskey of the year? It's so hard. <laughs> like how do you, you know, what do you do next? Right. Um, so I was really, really, I don't know, anxious about that, I guess is the word. And so uh, last November, you know, when we did the library review, I actually I had a lot more samples um, get pulled for the the library. So I I sampled actually 
um, every single one of our maturing whiskey lots, which is like thousands of samples. Uh, my poor warehouse team, I think, thought I was a little bit crazy. But um, I really wanted to be able to kind of go through it with a fine tooth comb and make sure that we could, you know, deliver on, on these expectations. And so the approach, um, I, I had a partner from the blending team, um, Rachel, who came and helped me kind of sort through all of those. And, you know, we quality rated them and tagged all of the ones that, you know, I thought were close to last year's bottled and bond. So it kind of expressed some of the same character and, you know, level of quality. And we did this all blind, right? So I had no idea what the age was, you know, wasn't targeting any particular season, just a pure blind assessment on the quality of the whiskeys. And then it was on that basis, like kind of at the end of that effort, you know, looked at the spreadsheet and looked at what season had the most, you know, of whiskeys that that were tagged, you know, that I thought they could be a part of the bottled and bond. Um, and so that's how fall 2008 was selected as the season. And then I pulled those lots that I had tagged as, okay, these could be part of bottled and bond. And then, you know, I went and sat down with them and blended them and kind of worked on blending them in different ratios to create a, a really balanced and, and kind of lovely expression that showed the best of, of what those lots could express. I did the first one. So the fall 2005 release, um, I, full disclosure, I blended it in a day. Um, I was like, this is beautiful. This is great. And, you know, it can go out in the world. Uh, I spent weeks, <laughs> I spent weeks and weeks on the second one um, out of that exact sort of paranoia that you mentioned of like really wanting to make sure because I knew the first release was so allocated that, um, you know, for a lot of people, this this follow eight release would be the first opportunity that they had to taste bottled and bond. And I just really wanted to make sure that it, it kind of lived up. And and it, and it did because I believe that's the one I, I was able to try the other night, and I think it might be one of my uh, it might be my favorite uh, a dickel that you guys produce. So oh, thank you so uh, much. I, I mean, it was it was delicious. Um, if if you can call a whiskey delicious, absolutely, <laughs> uh, you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's one well, of the best possible compliments. Um, what, for, for me, you know, when, when I look at folks in this industry, especially in your role where you, you do a little bit of the steward, but you also are out and about, you're talking to me, you're, you know, when there's tours and stuff, you might be around for, for that when, when those are, are able to happen again, what's your favorite part of your role with, with Cascade Hollow and George Dickel? Is it just getting out and meeting people or, or is it being able to continue on a legacy? What, what's your favorite part of it? My favorite is honestly those rare days where I actually get to be, you know, in the distillery. Um, it's, that's my absolute favorite. I mean, it's such an amazing place and, um, you know, exploring the whiskeys that we have and, you know, working with the team to maybe distill something new and interesting. Like that's, that's really, um, where my passion is. You know, as, as grueling as it is, everyone always says, oh, maybe they want to come and blend with me and, you know, I always kind of laugh and say, like, do you really want to spend like three straight weeks in dead silence nosing like thousands of whiskeys? <laughs> it's not the most fun. Um, but if I, you know, I'm, I'm joking because for me, it really is. I, I, that's my absolute favorite part of my job. I was going to say, I mean, that that's what, why you got into it. it, it, you're it doing is. a great job exactly <laughs> and, and you're doing a wonderful job before I kind of let you go here. One thing that has always kind of popped into my mind is when you think of bourbons and whiskeys even craft beer things like that you think of the bearded guy uh you know working working there or or more of a male dominated industry what's it like to be a female in this industry because i don't feel like there 
as many of you in the roles that you're in. Um, you know, now that's beginning to change, but I don't feel like that's, um, you, you, you know, something you see often. So what's that like? You know, there's always been women in this industry and I think you're right. They just haven't been necessarily made, made as visible. Right. So I would agree with you. It's a visibility issue more than it is an issue of their presence. There, um, are a ton of women that have been in this industry for a long time that, you know, preceded me ever taking this role. And I think the advantage of now and, you know, what we're seeing happening in this moment, you know, really, I guess over the last 10 years um, is more of a willingness to make those women visible um, and, you know, put them front and center and, and let their voices be heard and, and you know, put them out in front of, of consumers. And I think that's a shift and I'm, I'm really grateful to be a part of it. And there's, you know, so many I would I would go so far as to say I really feel like women are leading the industry in a lot of places right now. So um, you know the notion of it as male dominated, I mean, honestly, feels a little antiquated to me now. You know when there's so many women who are so clearly dominating this industry, and I still think we have a lot of work to do as an industry to increase minority representation, and that's something that I'm you know really really trying to participate in. But women have made great strides, and I, I think a lot of that is down to not just you know companies starting to change their tune and about who they who they put their you know kind of resources behind, but um, also you know just a growing industry, right? Like with the growth of craft spirits, there's just a lot of opportunity opening up with the industry expanding that creates opportunity for for a lot of people. So um, it's it's not just me. There are a ton of us and. Uh, it's a pretty amazing cohort to to be a part of. And then Nicole, before I let you go, my my last question is: What's next for for you and and George Dickel and, and Cascade Hollow? What, what's 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 coming down the line? Any anything big? And mm-hmm. and uh, what are you looking to to do? So many things. Um, <laughs> I am so excited. I, I'm preparing a number of new whiskey releases this year. Um, some big. Um, on kind of innovations off of George Dickel, uh, which I can I can't say too too much about, but um, I can maybe drop some strong hints uh, around um, you know taking advantage of some of the beautiful aged whiskey stocks that we have and trying to make those more available. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Hopefully in the next six months here, and then uh, later in the year, uh, kind of in, in the next calendar year. I'm also looking to kind of do another uh, another big um, new whiskey on George Dickel. So really excited about that. Um, I would say both of them will very much be in keeping with my ethos and the ethos of George Dickel around like honesty and transparency and, you know, really satisfying the classic whiskey lovers. So I can absolutely promise that I'm not planning like, you know, Dickel Cholula. Um <laughs> <laughs> but, and then I'm. I also am working on um, some some fun new whiskeys that are smaller and a little more experimental. So uh, lots coming in the next year. So so stay tuned, and we might have to come back and talk again when they're out, and I can talk about them. I I, I would love that. And it sounds like you're getting to do what they they wanted you to do, and that's be a little bit of uh, uh, an innovator uh, with with the Dickel brand. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the best things, honestly, about the Whiskey of the Year Award was, um, I think, getting getting a little faith, you know, to and some support to try some of these things. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. There's some beautiful, beautiful whiskeys in the warehouse, and there's also 
I, some really skilled folks in the distillery who, you know, have been helping me make some really amazing whiskeys for the last two years. So uh, a lot of exciting things coming down the pipeline. I can't wait to see see what you guys have in store and, and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to get you back on to talk about those. Nicole, Absolutely. I really appreciate appreciate you taking the time to, to talk some whiskey with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. It was such a pleasure to talk to Nicole Austin, the general manager and distiller of Cascade Hollow Distilling in Tennessee, better known as the home of George Dickel Tennessee Whiskey. Uh, that was a, a great honor for me and a really cool interview. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And next week here on Whiskey Weeks, we'll talk to Trip Stimson of Barrelcraft Spirits in Kentucky, and they're doing things very different than what you might uh, normally think of when it comes to whiskeys. They're blending them, different ages, coming out with some really cool flavors. You won't want to miss that. Whiskey Weeks will continue on for five straight weeks. That's where we got four more episodes coming up for you. And remember, you can keep up with all of this on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Hops and Spirits at Hops and Spirits on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to check out our partner in crime, One Sip Beer Review on Instagram. They do near daily beer reviews. They also have some cool giveaways, fun videos. That's at One Sip Beer Review on Instagram. Until next time, cheers, everyone. Cheers.